praise you, our Lord and Savior. We worship you. We thank you. For we serve and worship not only a, a risen Savior, a risen King, but also a baby that was born. Where you literally invaded your creation to establish your kingdom. To show us the way to heaven. As the song goes, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. We thank you that we can remember that this Christmas season. The Lord, prepare our hearts to receive um, this message on hope. Uh, speak through me to bring glory and uh, put the spotlight on God the Father and God the Son. I ask you to do that, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I always forget to do this, and again, you can do your giving in the back there and so on, and, and it, let me remind everybody that if you want to and, and catch up on your giving, and it, sometimes people do, sometimes, usually churches have a larger giving at the end of the year in December, so um, you can make sure to, to do that and also to keep up with your capital campaign pledges. Um, one thing I love about this church is that they understand giving, which is why we don't really talk much about it and so on. So, amen to that. I want to begin this morning. Um, last week, I shared a story from Ken Geyer on his, what he called his wilderness testing. And how he had written his master's thesis on the wilderness testing, written in the Bible. And he had never been through a wilderness testing. Uh, and then God took him through that through a career change and unemployment for years and so on. And uh, let me just share a little bit of, of a piggyback off that story. When uh, I left campus ministry and joined the staff of the church, Bowling Green Covenant Church, um, and then was transitioning out of that from campus ministry into a church setting, um, Erica and I, well, I was a little working, the kids were young, Eric was raising the kids, and I needed to provide for the family. And it, I sent out resumes and immediately got responses and then went to be the associate pastor of the church in Kirtland, Ohio. Um, got to learn a lot about how the administration of a church runs and so on. And unfortunately, I got to learn a lot about church politics. And um, it was obvious that God had me on a very uh, a different time frame than I anticipated because I was really ready to move on into a, a senior pastor role. And when things started to, it became obvious it was time for me to move on from the church in Kirtland, um, there was about a year, year and a half where we were, I had sent out my resumes and I was working through a lot of difficult things in this church. Um, but the key thing was, was that I had to endure all this because I needed to provide for the family because again, Erica and the kids were, were still young and Erica wasn't working. When I got to Indiana, I was there working. And then when it was time for me to move on, as I was sending out resumes, I was getting no response back. And when they were moving on, and it was gonna be June of 2014, was June 1st, I think was the last day there. About a month before that, Erica had begun working with a company um, called 7Gen, and eventually they offered her a full-time position about a month before I was a step down. So God had provided for us during that time. Now I had always sent out my resume, always gotten quick responses, I got no responses. So with her limited income, which wasn't enough for us, plus my severance, we lived off that for that year, 2014. Well, 2015, 
we didn't have enough money, so we started to go into debt. And I remember going to the grocery store every Friday and just having to put stuff on a credit card and, and forcing myself to say, thank you, Lord, that at least we have this food, and thanking him, even though we didn't have enough money, but we were waiting for God to move and to provide for us. I kept sending out resumes and getting nothing back. And that was from June of 2014, well, actually before then, until it was June of 2016 when I came here, right? Two years of sending out resumes and getting rejected. Two years, well, actually, my 18 months, roughly, of you know, not having enough money. And that was a wilderness testing for me. One of the things I learned through all of that, though, was that I had really stopped trusting God in terms of his provision. Remember, I, it was drilled into me that I need to provide, I need to provide, I need to provide, and God said, no, you need time off right now. I'll provide for you, and you just have to accept what I give you. You've been down that road before? Yeah. But during that time, my muscles of, of faith and hope were strengthened. And like I said last week, there's something about trials that confirm or strengthen our muscles of hope. And so I want to talk about that this morning. We're going to really do a sermon on what I call a, a, it's really a doctrine of hope or a theology of hope. But I want to begin by talking about what I call the full assurance of hope. Uh, we need hope during this time. Um, I think our world has slowly come to the realization that what we said in the very beginning of this global pandemic, which is now, an, I think, an endemic, you just have to live with it. It's going to be part of life, and it just treat it like the flu eventually. But turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, if you would. I do not have any verses up there. We're going to go through a, a full assurance of hope. Then I'm going to give you 15 brief points, um, and I'll go through them very quickly, um, about hope, what hope is, why we hope, and why it's a good time to learn about hope during this Christmas season. Hebrews chapter six, verses nine through 12. Uh, the writer of Hebrews has warned his readers that it's possible for people who've had remarkable religious experiences. And I know that some of you here have had remarkable religious experiences. But it is possible to abandon the faith and go beyond the point of no return. And to that, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews six, starting in verse nine, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show this same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, how does the author know his readers will not fall away? Again, at this time, these, these Jews were being pressured to abandon Christian, Christianity and return to Judaism or suffer martyrdom. 
So how does he know his readers won't fall away? Well, he has confidence in them because they have not only been loving servants for God's sake in the past, but look, they are still serving as you still do. See that? In verse uh, 10. And that's the point of verses 9 through 10. Now in verses 11 through 12, he charges them to press on and not become sluggish. This charge is described in terms of hope. Specifically, the full assurance of hope. In other words, with all the zeal of the past that enabled you to work in love in the name of Christ, keep on pursuing the full assurance of hope to the end. Now, of course, that begs the question, what is the full assurance of hope? Well, it is simply hope which is confident in the promises of God. Because watch what verse 12 says is the result of of really striving after, of going hard after the full assurance of hope. Look at verse 12. What will you become like? You'll be like those who through faith and patient inherit the promises. So aggressively pursue hope so you can act like men and women of faith. You see that? Now, what men and women of faith is the writer referring to? Who are you going to be like? Well, turn to Hebrews 11, verses 32 and 34. This is who you will be like when you go hard after or pursue diligently with all your heart the full assurance of hope. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. What did these people do? Who through faith, or through the continual pursuit of the full assurance of hope, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. When you pursue the full assurance of hope with everything you have, you're acting like men and women of faith. You're acting like these people he's, Paul's, or the writer of Hebrews is referring to. You're acting like Abel, who offered a better sacrifice. Enoch, who never tasted death. Noah, by faith, survived a worldwide flood. Abraham believed God. In hope against hope, he believed God and received a promised heir. Sarah was given the power to conceive in her late 90s. Moses saved the firstborn of Israel from the destroyer. The people of Israel, in faith, crossed the Red Sea. Daniel closed the mouths of lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they walked among fire. They pursued the full assurance of hope. Folks, that is why our enemy tries so hard to discourage us. You see, he knows what we can become if we hope. You see that? And so for the remainder of, t- of our time this morning, I want to give you what I, I like to think of as a doctrine of hope. 
Because if we're ever gonna learn how to hope in difficult times, then we better know something about what the Bible teaches us about hope. So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter one. 1 Peter chapter one. It's a little small book near the end of the Bible. The verse is up there on the screen, so you're going to need to get your phone or Bible out. I don't have any verses up there on the screen, so. Is everyone there? Do you need more time? If you're not there, raise your hand. Anybody? Okay. First Peter chapter 1. Okay. Sorry, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Bible commentators call the Apostle Peter the Apostle of Hope. So if you ever need hope, read Peter's letters. And it's not surprising then that after Peter opened his letter with words of praise for God the Father and his Son, and after he reminds his readers that salvation is a gift of God's mercy that Peter talks about hope. And specifically, he states that believers are given a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly does Peter mean when he speaks of a living hope? Well, again, I'm gonna remind you, this is the definition that I gave you for what hope is, and this would include what a living hope is. It's a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. We went through that last week, but let's talk about what I call a doctrine of hope. The first point I want you to see out of 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, is that it is an exclusive hope. Living hope is an exclusive hope. It is linked to being what in the text? You're born again to a living hope. Now what does it mean to be born again? What is that referring to? Salvation. Salvation, exactly. So this living hope is exclusively reserved for who? Believers. Believers in Jesus Christ. So thus being born again, it serves as our reason for hope, the assurance of salvation. Now folks, this is why the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter two, verse 12, that those who don't have Jesus Christ, guess what? They do not have hope. Paul wrote this, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Your ability to hope comes from a living hope that is reserved exclusively for children of God and children of God only. A living hope or a doctrine of hope is confident. Again, the Greek term for hope in the Peter passage it means an eager, confident expectation. I said this last week, and I remind you again, it is not wishful thinking. It is not crossing your fingers. It is not hoping that the kicker makes this 30-yard field goal and your team wins the game. It's beyond that. 
we live with great expectation as our living hope originates from who? A living, resurrected Savior. Now this is interesting. I learned this. This living hope, or our hope, it is what we call lively. It's actually what the word living hope means in the Greek. So the hope of the believer is not only living, but it is what we call lively. Now what does that mean? It can be translated as a hope that lives on. A hope that lives on. Now this has profound implications for the child of God. You see, unlike the empty, dead hope of the world, this living hope, this is what it does, this lively hope, it is energizing you. It is alive within you. It is active in the soul of the believer. That's what it means to have a living hope. That's what it means to hope. And point number four is that it is secured, this hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, in this context, the Apostle Peter is speaking to Christians who are suffering persecution in Asia Minor. I mean, his words were meant to encourage them in their troubles. And in that context, he speaks to them of a hope. And how does he encourage them? By reminding them that their future was secure because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their hope was in his victory over death in his resurrection life. So whatever the persecuted believers would face in this world, it could not compare to the blessings of the future resurrection in the life to come in eternity. What we deal with when we go through a difficult time and we want that, that tribulation or that trial to end is that we want the temporary pain to be relieved, right, and to go away. And that's okay, but what we want, what you should do is focus on your future. What awaits you? Hope in that. Because you don't know how long God has decreed that this trial goes on in your life. The goal isn't to, to be comfortable. The goal is to grow, to have those muscles of hope strengthened to become more like Jesus Christ. Now this hope, I mean number five, by the way, it's established in the past because Jesus rose from the dead. Remember the words of the angel? He is not here, he is risen. Come see the place where he was lying. Not only does this, is this hope established in the past, watch this, it continues in the present because Jesus is alive. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's alive, seated at the right hand of God. And guess what? This hope endures throughout the future because Jesus promises eternal resurrection life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. 
So this hope is established in the past. It continues in the present. It endures throughout the future. Now watch this. This is where it really hits home for us. Is it enables us to live without despair as we encounter suffering and trials in this present life. Folks, you will suffer. You will have suffering and trials in this present life. That's a promise. But you have a hope that will enable you to not despair. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, just listen to this. This is what Paul says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. What does that phrase mean, do not lose heart? What does that mean? Don't lose hope. Right. We don't lose hope. We don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, not this fleshly body of ours, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, and that's what it is, no matter what you go through in this world, as difficult as it may seem, as unbearable it may be, it is still, in light of eternity, a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, there's something about losing heart that is so damaging to be without hope. Proverbs says this, losing heart is the same as losing hope. People cannot survive long without hope. Proverbs says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You cannot survive long without hope. Hope keeps us going through painful experiences in fear of what the future may hold. In a fallen world where people face poverty, disease, hunger, injustice, disaster, war, and terrorism, we need a living hope. And we have that. Now, I like this point here. Point number nine. Hope, or living hope, its object is our inheritance. You need to be thinking about that. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We have an inheritance that will not be touched by death, stained by evil, or faded with time. It is death-proof, sin-proof, and age-proof. This inheritance is also fail-proof because God guards and preserves it in heaven for us. It is secure. Absolutely nothing can undermine the certainty of our future inheritance. And if that is not enough, God guarantees our inheritance by putting down a deposit to ensure it will always be there for us. And that deposit is who? The Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. 
with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And by the way, this inheritance, I didn't put it in here, but I just thought of this, and you've heard me say this before, but it's a sizable inheritance that awaits you. You're called to know the riches of his glory, of his inheritance, okay? That's what awaits you. I've said that I'll have a house right next to God and miles and miles will be my wife's little shack. But she can visit me, right? So. So the object of, of your hope is the inheritance that awaits you. Number 10, it is confirmed by the work of the Holy Spirit, this hope. Romans 15, 13 says this, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope, you'll just be overflowing with hope, abound in hope, watch this, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God who is the source of hope energizes us by the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who stirs up that hopeful attitude in our hearts in response to the promises of God revealed in Scripture. It's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Number 11, it removes, and this is totally cool, the fear of death. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 57. Just listen to this. But when this perishable, meaning our bodies, will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. You know how it goes. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you have this hope, this living hope, the sting of death is gone. It disappears. Because death simply ushers you into the presence of the Lord. So we don't have anything to be afraid of when it comes to death. Death is our releasing. It is freeing us up to be what we were deemed to be. The longer I live, I kind of arrogantly live this thinking out. Probably because I'm impatient, but I'm like, I'm just going to walk through here. I'm tired of waiting. If a car hits me, a car hits me. Take me home. <laughs> because that's how I think about it, okay? But it's a nice thing to know that there's something better awaits us. Right? I, I discovered this from John MacArthur. You know, he was uh, friends with Larry King. He would be on Larry King Live a lot. You guys know who the talk show host Larry King was. I think he passed away a few years ago. But he tells the story of an off-air conversation he had with Larry King. It says, Larry King off the air said to me, are you afraid to die? Do you have a fear of death? I said, I have no fear of death. And he asked me again, he said, you really mean that? You have no fear of death? I said, I have no fear of death. I said, I have normal anxiety about the way you might suffer prior to death, but I have no fear of death because of my hope in Christ. That's the fulfillment of everything that matters to me. And then Larry said this. He said, I wish I could have that faith. And I said, oh, you could. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the truth of Jesus Christ, the word of Christ. Now, this is my favorite point, this, this one here. I, I did not know this. I learned this. So if I'm a little excited about this one, um, it's because I think this is totally cool. Watch this. This hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. I'm explaining to you what this means. Everyone go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Is everybody there? Okay. Look at verses 19 and 20. I'll wait for my mother-in-law. She's still not there. She's a little slow. So we'll wait for her. You're there, finally, thank you. All right, you all there? Good. Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast in one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, to the New Testament covenant, not the Old Testament covenant, but the New Testament covenant, in this context, God is adding another pledge and another security. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying that we have another security for our hope. That means you have another anchor for your soul. Well, where is my soul anchored? What does the text say? Where? 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 Thank you. Within the veil. It's inside the veil where it is sure and steadfast. Now, what veil? What does that mean? Well, you know, in the temple, the most sacred place was called the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant, or the, the symbol of the glory of God. And only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in and perform his ministerial duties, and he would be constantly moving, and he moved quickly because that was the place where God dwelled, and only the high priest could go in, no other man could go into the Holy of Holies. But our great high priest, Jesus Christ, performed the perfect sacrifice, and he entered into the Holy of Holies. But when he entered the Holy of Holies, what did he do? Well, if you don't know the answer to that, now you're going to find out. He sat down. Where did he sit down? At the right hand of God the Father. He sat down. His work was completed, and what happened? The veil was ripped open, ushering in a new and living way into the presence of God. Do you understand what, what happened, what I'm saying there? When we put our faith, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and make him your Lord and Savior, what you do is you throw an anchor, is what this text is saying. And this anchor the anchor of hope, it reaches all the way where? To heaven, into the Holy of Holies, past the veil, and anchors to who? Jesus Christ. And where he is interceding for us. 
and nothing can sever that attachment. He holds that anchor in his hands, and he'll never let go. And folks, that is security. Now you might think, well, how long are we anchored there? Right? Well, look at verse 20. What does it say? Forever. 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 There we go. There has never been a high priest like Jesus. And because of him, we are anchored to God forever. That is some living hope. And I bet there's more. This hope defends us against doubt that comes from our enemy. Just listen to this. You may know about the armor of God. This is another abbreviated version of it. It says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we find an abbreviated version of spiritual armor. And Paul describes the hope of salvation as what? A helmet. You put the helmet on your head, and it's on your head for a reason. Because Christians are going to be attacked by Satan in many ways. And one of those ways Satan tries to crush us is through thoughts of doubt. You ever doubt your salvation in your Christian experience? Sure you have. There have been many times in your life where you may have doubts about your salvation. Maybe your thought is, you know, I don't know if I'm really saved. I'm so sinful, I'm not sure I'm worthy. But Paul says we have this uniquely designed helmet, which is the hope of salvation. And it is then we find that hope defends us against Satan's attacks. Because the Holy Spirit continues to affirm that you're a child of God, what hope does is defend us by reminding us of the glory that awaits us. You fix your hope on this salvation. And despite the, 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 the thoughts that try to, enemy sins that try to crush you, that try to just hammer away at you, you're reminded in hope of the glory that awaits you. And that is a great comfort. That is a formidable defense. Because no matter what goes wrong in the world, and plenty will go wrong, we know there's a better life to come. No matter what trouble comes, a trial or an illness or a disaster or death, we know that there's something better to come. And that is what we eagerly wait for with something more than wishful or positive thinking. This hope is a defense because when Satan is hammering us with doubt, we go right back to the revelation of our hope. Number 14, this hope serves as a motivation for holiness. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says this, Beloved, know now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Do you understand that? You don't know what yet you will be turned into when you go to be with him. When you're reunited with a glorified or resurrected body, we know what that body will be like whose body? Jesus's when he was resurrected. This glorified body is something that will be absolutely amazing. 
And we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Verse three, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This living hope, see, it should affect your conduct. It should purge sin from you because you know that your destiny is what? To be glorified just like the Son of God. So the proof of being a Christian is your love for God and others demonstrated by obedience to his commands resulting in purity. So the personal pursuit of holiness is an evidence that you are living in the light of a true eternal hope. That's your destiny. That's what awaits you. And finally, the last point. Are you guys awake? No one seems to be asleep so far. It is fully realized at Christ's second coming. I don't know how to explain this very well, but Titus says this, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you remember the story, I think John tells it, of in the garden, right before Jesus is taken and betrayed and so on? Um, there's a story, I, I don't remember exactly where it is, where the soldiers fall to the ground before him. Do you remember that? Do you know why they did that? Theologians um, surmise that he peeled back perhaps part of his eye, like you can your eyelid and pull it back, and he revealed what was underneath, who he really was. And that glory and that, that glorified person who he is, God of gods, it's just too much. And just like when angels appear before men, what, what do men always do when they, an angel, they fall down? Well, imagine being God, these soldiers fell down. There was a, a, a portion of who he is when he was transformed. And he was having a conversation with who? Moses and Elijah, right? And so, you know, that's what is our destiny. This great, I mean, our destiny is glorification. That's what makes Christianity so inviting. Because the destiny of atheism is what? Extinction. The destiny of every other world religion is either extinction or nothingness. Christianity is no, 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 no. It's glorification. And that will be fully realized at his second coming, which is why we should long for his second coming. This is our focus. Because it is then, at his second coming, that all the glories of our hope will be fulfilled when Christ comes. And what happens at his appearing, this is what he does. The one who redeemed us from every sin will purify us for himself, a people for his own possession. And what an amazing and encouraging thought that is. And if there was ever a time for Christians to hope, it certainly is now. Because the plan of God in Genesis chapter 3 was brought to a one level of realization at the birth of our Savior. And we brought to its full realization at the second coming of our King. Because his first coming, he came to die. But his second coming, 
He's coming to rule. And when he comes again, by the way, who will come with him? We will. We will. And so I want you to meditate on these. That's the application point. Just simply meditate on these 15 truths. And then I'll see everybody here Friday night for our Christmas Eve service. We're going to close with one of my favorite songs that we sing during our Christmas Eve service, Silent Night. And then you guys can go. But if you'd stand with me. I'll pray and we'll sing Silent Night. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have. I hope that people were encouraged (laughs) as a result of this message. May we learn to hope in you because we have an awful lot to hope about. And all God's people said, amen.